Hi, Lauren. Nick, thanks for coming back. I wanted to talk to you about something. Okay, but if it's not too long, because I really don't want to lose the audience. Look, Nick, I, I think you should stop talking about your leading lady's body parts. Okay, um, may I ask why? <laughs> well, I, I, I think the audience kind of finds that offensive. Why? It's true, isn't it? What, am I, am I wrong about Sarah's breasts? I mean, they're beautiful, aren't they? Uh, of course Sarah's breasts are beautiful. I just don't want the audience to think you're sexist. Sexist? Oh, God! They must, they must hate me. I mean, well, what are we gonna no, do? No, don't worry, you'll be fine. Well, well they, they probably think I'm the biggest jerk who's, who's ever been on the show. No, no, that would be Steven Seagal. Well... <laughs> Hello friends, we're back, it's Hit Factory, my name is Aaron, my name is Carly, and uh, very blessed to be joined today by a, a wonderful guest, writer and filmmaker, Jeremy Herbert is on the show. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for saying that before the episode has even been recorded. You don't know, I could be a terrible guest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we know enough of one another, Jeremy, to know that that's probably not going to be the case in, unless you've come to, you know, to, to nuke the thing from the start. <laughs> we, yeah. we know that, uh, that you are informed, especially about today's subject, uh, and a very eloquent and thoughtful uh, film person. Thank you. You're very welcome. I also feel like, just as an aside, I've had some very heartfelt online interactions with you, Jeremy, and it just, I, I have like a very warm place in my heart for you even though we've like never technically met or like interacted beyond twitter <laughs> you know so, I'm glad. that's that's a good kind of parasocial relationship i think I so i hold i hold both of you in high esteem well, thank you very that much, means Jeremy. a lot it does it means a, a great deal um and today we're going to be talking about uh very fascinating film very fascinating star uh, one Steven Seagal and his fourth outing, a film called Out for Justice from 1991. Uh, Jeremy, when we were initially talking about bringing you on the show, this was uh, one that came up. And I know that you uh, spend spend a bit of time posting about, talking about, maybe writing about uh, Mr. Seagal as a Hollywood figure um, and also sort of as a... Uh, a political figure, I guess we can call him, as just a, a sort of caricature that exists in the periphery of of culture at large. And I'm interested in in knowing what is Seagal to you? Like, why why is he fascinating to you? Um, despite this being uh, a title of one of his more recent direct video movies, I want to make it clear that he is not, in fact, a good man. Um, <laughs> he's the worst type of celebrity and that we've been forced to know of him <laughs> long past he's been famous for the thing that made him a celebrity and now he's just using the power for various forms of evil not just one <laughs> um 
to me, I'm I'm an action guy. I'm an action and I'm a horror guy. And uh, I just did write about this movie, in fact, for a list I have coming up of the be- the greatest action movies ever made. Very long list. That's why it's on there. But <laughs> it always struck me strange. And even I'm making fun of him as I do this. His star burns so fast and yeah. relatively bright. Not the brightest, relatively bright from zero to 60 and then a pretty quick decline and then nothing. And he's been doing uh, DTV stuff for, goodness gracious, 20, well, about 20 years now. To me, he's a fascinating figure because no other action star can be judged on the same scale. Um, you look at Van Damme, who is his closest colleague, I suppose. They're always compared because they were kind of the, um, they're the, the Lamborghinis to the 80s tanks instead of the size <laughs> right. and the shape. These are the fast guys. They do, they're the martial artists. Um, but Van Damme, you can see him work through Canon Productions. You can see him in the background of uh, Breaking 2 and uh, I think it's Breaking 2. It's either one or two. And you can see him start to prove himself. Uh, Bloodsport, Kickboxer, uh, Cyborg. And even across the 90s, he's doing different things. He takes the Schwarzenegger route. He does Universal Soldier. He does Time Cop. He plays with genre. Seagal just appeared. Uh, and I guess I guess now is as good a time as any to talk briefly about where he came from. Yes. Yep. His background, as close to the truth as we can get it, born in Lansing, Michigan, despite what... And this film is probably the first overt instance of him going neck deep into a culture that sort of kind of is not his that sort of kind of gets a lot blurrier the farther we go in his career across the 90s but (laughs) um italian russian jewish those are kind of the three uh genetic ingredients in steven seagal that will not stop him from stepping outside those bounds in weird ways or in the case of out for justice adopting a papa john's italian accent from start to finish (laughs) (laughs) he uh, took an interest in martial arts, ended up in Japan, had a family there, and learned Aikido, which is his his trade. I don't remember the exact specifics, but he did more or less abandon a wife and children there. He comes back to Hollywood, because that's the dream. He um, starts working in the background of movies, uh, working on fight choreography and that, that sort of deal. Famously, on Never Say Never Again, broke Sean Connery's wrist while rehearsing and showing him something. (laughs) Um, Somehow that was not the end of his Hollywood career. Technically, that wasn't even the start. It got to a point in the late 80s where he was the Aikido instructor for Mike Ovitz, the Mm -hmm. legendary super-duper producer Mike Ovitz. Yeah. It depends on who you ask as to the inherent insult of this challenge. But it's, it still is what it is, that Mike Ovitz decided he could make Seagal a star. Some say he could make anyone a star. And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it makes sense if there's a martial artist, as they're becoming in vogue at the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, that he might think he could do this. He shoots a screen test with Seagal. Warner Brothers couldn't care less. Um, he brings him in for a live martial arts demonstration. And that gets him enough juice to start making these mid to low budget action movies. So what you have 
is a martial arts instructor who has really no acting training out of nowhere starring in a summer blockbuster for Warner Brothers. And if you kind of look at it, uh, Above the Law, which came out in 1988, came out around the same time as the last Dirty Harry movie. And especially with Above the Law, you can kind of see Warner Brothers hoping maybe he's the next guy. Maybe he's the next not-too-expensive action-ish investment they can make. Because it's almost a Dirty Harry movie, Above the Law. Uh, However, Seagal just doesn't start there as an actor. He starts there as a producer. And he starts there as a a writer to some extent, be it story or whatever. Above the Law, which if you did uh, an 80s podcast, I would insist on. Because that's... (laughs) It's almost... It's autobiography by a man who lies uh, routinely about his oh own God. biography. Mm-hmm. Um, but there it is. In Above the Law, he's he's fully formed. Not quite as an actor. And I would almost argue, for the best, Above the Law is the closest we come to seeing him as an interesting actor. Because he doesn't know how to protect himself yet. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first three years of his career, he makes four movies. The fourth of which we're talking about today. And just that fast, Out for Justice is Seagal at the height of his powers, at the height of his own rapidly created delusion, for better and for worse, but entirely for fascination. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. It is, uh, there are better Seagal movies, I would say. Above the Law and Under Siege are better movies, both directed by Andrew Davis of The Fugitive. He knows right. how to work with actors. But there is no better uh, example of a Seagal, capital S, movie than Out for Justice. It's all there. Either you're going to get it or you don't. Um, if you don't <laughs> like him, you you will like him less. And if you do like him, you'll understand more of what he's capable of, which is why I subjected both of you to this. That is a brilliant platter for us to talk about him <laughs> on because there's so much there yeah. in what you said. And like, you know, as you mentioned, th- this film, Out for Justice, that we're talking about today, there is, in in every sense of the word, it, as we were watching this, it felt like a vanity project, right? Like so much of it feels uh, like inextricably linked to Seagal as a performer, as a martial artist, as a guy, right? Like everything is is very much kind of uh, sort of obviously his particular proclivities, his manners. You know, I, I'm convinced that every outfit he wears in the movie is something he just pulled from his own closet as well. Well, it, he does have some uh, looks, I will say, that in his almost all of his early movies, you see them. One of them in this movie is the kind of baggy black jacket with with jeans yeah that is a seagull look it's in all the movies another one that does not show up in this movie is what i call the birthday magician look and he wears <laughs> uh jeans like bright blue jeans a black suit coat and a magician's vest that is some heinous golden bright pattern on it that recurs in i believe three of his movies mm. um <laughs> yeah, not in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I I am familiar with this. I've seen this one before. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's very vivid in my mind right mm-hmm. now. Uh, but you know, the thing that seems interesting about Seagal, like even though there are certainly other 
kinds of performers who who bear sort of the the trademarks of Steven Seagal's work and his sort of ethos, right? Like maybe not quite like him, but but there these people who are uh, you know, skilled as as martial artists or, or skilled in one regard, um, not particularly great and adept actors have this sort of like intense uh, overzealousness and confidence to them, like a complete lack of self-awareness. You see these kind of people make movies often, you know, and, and lower budget, mid budget, what have you. The thing that I feel like separates Seagal, at, at least insofar as I know about him, and, and I'm relatively ignorant when it comes to, to Seagal, but he's always in movies with relatively competent to like very good directors. And he's always in movies that are populated by outstanding supporting casts of like very, very good character actors who help to kind of elevate the material and make it more interesting while he sort of uh, is there to, to blend and spice. That's true for this period. I will, I will agree with that. Um, the, the big exception to that out of this group director wise is hard to kill mm-hmm. his second movie directed yeah. by Bruce Malamuth, who just didn't have that much of a dignified resume. Um, and Seagal at the time did not like that movie and he thought it might be the end of things. And in the background, he was already trying to get uh, Dwight little of Halloween four to direct that. Uh, and he ended up stepping outside of Warner brothers. Cause he had a contract where he could make one movie away uh, and I guess the, the biggest lesson you can take away from Marked for Death, which is his strange Predator 2 adjacent voodoo action movie, um, <laughs> is that he went to another studio because he was annoyed at Warner Brothers for making him turn out the same kinds of movies. And then he immediately made the same kind of movie and then came back to Warner Brothers for this. Uh, although this probably has the most interesting director of his early stuff in John Flynn, who -hmm. did the great Rolling Thunder and has some genuine crime grit under his fingernails. Yeah. I mean, this one to me, you know, and and again, you know, I I think, Carly, you've only seen Hard to Kill besides this one. I think I've only ever seen Under Siege Mm -hmm. uh, on top of this one now. Um, But I, I was very taken aback by the kind of movie that I got here. Uh, It, it feels much more indebted to, uh, those those kind of scummy, grimy, like seventies crime flicks. You know, I I really liked the aesthetic of the movie. I thought that like visually it was handled very well. It's very seedy. We get kind of a good sense of that, you know, that kind of underground, that sort of periphery of of Brooklyn and of New York where all this stuff is going down. You know, kind of realizing in upon research that we're looking at a movie that's chopped down to about 90 minutes for the sake of marketability and for it to feel more familiar to Seagal fans. Um, but its its ambitions were much loftier at the start, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Jeremy? Uh, you are correct, down to Seagal and Flynn's preferred title. I'll say it's funny, but mainly funny based on what we got. And they wanted to call this the price of our blood. Right. Oh, boy. And <laughs> you know, it's it's funny to just post that right over um, the title on any given DVD copy of this, and it becomes an entirely different experience. If it was a half an hour longer, I, I don't know. Uh, then again, that half an hour, based on what folks have said, a lot of that would be more of William Forsythe and some more of Seagal acting. Uh, and I don't think that would have suddenly made it 
a more dramatic piece of work. Mm-hmm. I actually think in this case, the editing gave it a deranged sense of momentum that yes. you don't really see in 90s action. And you didn't really see in 80s action, to be honest, which is what you're talking about. That uh, hell or high water, get to the good stuff kind of action. Any movie that you know starts with uh, an Arthur Miller quote. <laughs> <laughs> Proud Brooklyn boy, Arthur Miller. Proud, right. Yeah. Uh, born in Brooklyn, it says. Or what, what does it say? It's like, uh, it, it doesn't say Brooklyn boy, but it does it say says, something. I think it says Brooklyn raised comma playwright right also a legendary asshole yeah playwright is less important to this film (laughs) than the fact he was born in brooklyn a thousand percent it is which is another seagal lie he has claimed at times that he grew up on the mean streets uh and i don't believe there's any evidence of that i could be wrong maybe he was there a bit but no 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 he for sure i mean if 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 we didn't know anything else about his origin story. The thing that gives away that that is not true is the way he holds a Brooklyn accent in his mouth in this movie. <laughs> like there, there, if he grew up anywhere proximate to Brooklyn or, or even a surrounding borough, it would have sounded differently and it doesn't. Um, so no, he definitely did not grow up. in Brooklyn. It sounds like his preparation was repeating. I'm walking here. And like, he just kept stretching it as far as it could go and then finally he's like there it is there it is i'm here i'm resting on these consonants for a good second or two longer than i should be it's good stuff (laughs) yeah it's i i I may be apocryphal but i i as i understand it uh there was a a conversation early on in the filming of this of this movie and and maybe more indicative of the relationship that uh seagal and, and william forsyth had while they were while they were making the movie and why some of his scenes wound up getting scrapped uh but uh maybe you know about it jeremy the fact that seagal uh criticized forsyth's brooklynite accent early on in the production despite the fact that uh seagal is uh from lansing michigan and and forsyth is a, a born and raised brooklynite i've i've heard that and frankly there's no reason for me to believe that's not true. Of course. <laughs> yeah. The experience of watching this movie is an interesting one because the the fourth wall is like constantly being broken. And I would imagine that this is the case uh, in a lot of his films. Although I, I can't say that I felt it as much in Hard to Kill. I think you're right, Jeremy. There's probably a lot of other stuff going on in that movie. Um but in this film in particular, I constantly felt like I was being forced to be made aware of the fact that I was watching Steven Seagal deliver lines rather than Gino Fellino. Um, and that, that he named himself Gino Fellino. That in he fairness, named doesn't himself <laughs> Gino Fellino. You know, this is a story I think that has some interesting heft to it narratively, but it all gets completely dissolved by the fact that I just found it to be a series of lines that Steven Seagal clearly wants to deliver. Like I just, I just kept feeling like, Oh, this is another line he has in his like diary of things he wants to say in a movie. Um, Which monologue gave that away? I I mean, to all of them, right? Like there, and even these little like one-off remarks where he's like, he, the, the things that people are saying to him too, where it's like his estranged wife is saying, 
I know these are your streets and I know this is your neighborhood, but there's got to be another cop out there that can do this. And I was just like, oh, my God, he's like living his best life in this film. I'm real sorry, you know, it was Richie McDonald. Laurie told the first officer Richie got out of the car and just stepped up. Bang. Gino, listen, you know, every mob operation they got, we're going to squeeze them till they give them up. Yeah, right. You do that, all right? But it's me that's gonna find this fucking guy, Richie. You know that. Captain! Wait a second. Gino. Are you all right? No, I'm not all right. I'm fucking like this. What do you think? He was my best friend. Gino, listen. We got a citywide out. Every available officer. We got ALs at the tolls, airports, trains, buses. Ronnie, Ronnie, this guy ain't gonna run. He'll sneak and he'll hide, but he ain't gonna leave Brooklyn. Now look. I'll feed you every dope digging dive he's got. But let me do it my way. Just give me an unmarked and a shotgun, all right? You know, when I say lofty ambitions, this movie, on more than one occasion to me, feels like it's trying to channel on the waterfront. (laughs) That Seagal uh, kind of fancies himself uh, kind of a a Brando type in this movie. Uh, You know, they, they try to incorporate this this mythic kind of quality of like generational kind of, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, all these guys who knew each other when they were kids and went different ways. You know, uh, I, I think even one of the the waitresses at the joint that Gina Gershon runs is named Terry Malloy. Oh, wow. I didn't even catch that. <laughs> yeah, she is indeed. There are layers to this movie. There are so many layers. layers. Uh, but it, I mean, it's funny watching, uh, you know, Seagal, Seagal do this, right? I mean, I, I don't, when I think of him, when I think of sort of like these kind of uh, macho action stars, even the Ferraris to the tanks, as you mentioned, Jeremy, I, I don't think of them as the kind of guys who who fancy themselves those serious actors who want to do that kind of uh, on the waterfront style, like I could have been a contender moments. Uh, and yet he goes for it. You know, more than once in the movie, he tells these long stories about growing up. He he talks about, you know, family and talks about uh, duty. And there's this I I don't know, there's this dizzying, frenzied kind of like quality to it where it it almost reaches those kind of like (laughs) levels of ecstasy to me where you you just see it. And, and I wonder how it even how it even got made. You know, it feels so idiosyncratic. It feels like the kind of movie that people don't take a chance on anymore that doesn't get to get made. Um, and it's propulsive in a way that is kind of intoxicating at times. Uh, an interesting thing about Seagal is that because movie star was almost a surprise to him in a sense. Obviously, he wanted to do a great many things and be generally famous, but overnight you're a movie star uh by his third movie he was living next door to michael jackson that's (laughs) that's throwing an ice cube into scalding hot coffee like that that does something um (laughs) and in an interview with arsenio uh for this movie yeah for this one um he talks about acting he asks him you know who's your favorite who do you watch or whatever and his answer the first name he could think of is Sir John Gielgud. <laughs> what? And he credits James Mason as his mentor. And then he goes on to say, um, when asked what what movie you know would you like to do, what kind of movie? First, he says he'd like to do nonviolent movies. 
And the two nonviolent movies he lists are Witness and Marathon Man. Oh my God! <laughs> so keep all of the this this constellation of influences in mind every time you see this guy, this the Bigfoot of Brooklyn, walk onto a scene and and emote, and boy does he give it his all. It's not like he's pulling any punches. He's trying. He's really trying in this movie. The thing that is interesting and definitely frustrating about this film is like I never have a clear sense of like where his character is coming from in any given scene like you you have the sort of general kind of like binary of the narrative of like he's the guy that became the cop and uh Richie's the guy that you know became the gangster but in any given scene, he's he's sometimes filled with remorse. He's angry. He's uh, kind. He's abusive at times. Like he's he's always sort of all over the place. And I think, um, you know, as you're describing him, recount the things that he's uh, been influenced by, and uh, and is is a self described, um, you know pupil of it makes a lot of sense that that would be the result that we get on screen this kind of like I don't want to say manic but you know disjointed character um that's more just like an amalgamation of ideas he might have about a certain type of acting or um a certain type of actor coming to fruition on screen um you know in these really strange ways his first act as a character is that he blows a big stakeout because he sees a prostitute um, or a pimp beating a prostitute. <laughs> Obviously that's a good thing, but also that it's revealing in ways. I don't think Seagal producer really thought about like that was a dumb thing that you did. Yes. It's yes. righteous, but that was a very stupid thing that you just did. And um, interestingly never comes up again as like a material character trait in the no. film. Like later he's like manhandling a waitress because he needs her to like identify a body. Like he's not, it doesn't ever come out that like that is, you know, important to like propel the story forward in any way. Like that never comes up again. He falsely imprisons Gina Gershon yes. <laughs> and says that he's going to like charge her with, uh, with, solicitation yeah oh yeah another cop says like oh yeah i arrested her for that before i remember <laughs> you're fine we can keep her as long as you want yep um the best way to understand him this is how i described him in the in the list i was writing is that he's a self-appointed golem of quote his town hmm. whatever he yes. sees as a problem in his town he's just going to kill it like that he won't he won't do anything else um the most interesting thing to me is that is that he is a free radical and I think that's the best way to understand and appreciate. Mm -hmm. He's just, he's a goal. He's like, yeah, all right. Well, that guy, uh, uh, Foresight knew what he was doing. What's he expect? I'm coming. And the thing is, Foresight seems to know somebody's coming. He knows he's going to die. Right. Um, but Seagal just starts walking. And eventually, he walks through the right door and uh, stabs him in the forehead with a corkscrew. There is your justice. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, like, the mob tells him, we know you're going to kill this guy. 
please don't let us get him. And the police don't even have that much compunction. They just kind of know he's going to go and they let him go. A lot of the violence in this, he is a slasher villain. Um, he blows mm. a man's leg off and off is the operative term. He, he splits a guy's hand with a meat cleaver. <laughs> um, he knocks out teeth with a cue ball. Mm-hmm. And none of his other early movies go that hard. I want to make that absolutely clear. Um, so clearly he thought there was some truth in that, maybe more weight in that, that the violence is more important. There's also a man that, um, I don't know if he was at the time he became a Buddhist and believed in peace and stri- tried to make less violent movies as a means of fixing his karma. So mm-hmm. also keep that in mind while you think about the scenes of this movie. You know, I would I will say this about the movie. I was uh, surprised by how kind of mean and violent it was from the outset. You know, yeah. if if it wasn't enough to see uh, William Forsyth just kind of mercilessly shoot, uh, you know, a, a police officer out with his family on the street, we immediately know what kind of movie we're in for when he then uh, pulls a woman's head out of her car uh, through the window for honking at them and then, you know, kind of blows her away uh, equally mercilessly. But it certainly helps the movie in terms of its propulsion because, you know, Seagal is a performer, despite being an Aikido master, despite being a competent martial artist, doesn't seem all that interested in being in motion much in this movie. No. He, he <laughs> seems to like doing as, as little as possible to dispense with his victims. That is a side effect of his chosen art. He is an Aikido master. How much of a master is up to uh, dispute by many people more versed in that than I am. But however, looking at Aikido as uh, just a basis, the point is while doing as little as possible, turning your opponent's momentum against them while also hurting them as little as possible. Hmm. As you may have noticed from that description, that is the least cinematic possible martial art. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So while Van Damme is doing spin kicks and jumping into splits across his kitchen counter, you have Seagal, who usually just kind of holds his hands, steering wheel width apart, and spins them, and then the guy coming at him flips into a jukebox. Yes. Um, that's what he does. <laughs> And what's funny is this movie kind of does better because there's a lot more improvised fighting, like the pool cues and things like that. But there's really no getting around the fact his mastery just is not impressive to watch. I was also surprised at how, like, little he's hurt in any way or even not even hurt, but just. um... I counted. I know what you're talking about. I counted. He How is, many times? <laughs> he is hit in any way, shape, or form three times. The first time, he's hit in the back of the leg with a pool cue because he's distracted. Oh, right. Right. That's right. The second time, he is shot in the gut during the final confrontation. Mm-hmm. And the third time is Foresight like, pushes his thumb into the bullet wound. So you could even say two, technically. But those are three genuine wounds. Unless I missed one, that's it. No, I think you're right. And they all, interestingly, come in the back half of the film. He spends the first, you know, 
uh, 40, 45 minutes or so, like literally never even breaking a sweat in any of these fights. Correct. Um, I think the stunt work is so good by the other performers. I wasn't terribly distracted by it, but it does kind of add to this, as you said, so, so perfectly this deranged momentum that the film has where it's like it feels like he's walking through a maelstrom and uh and you know a hair is never out of place on him it's it's a fascinating quality that the movie has because of of it as i said this movie will show you for better and worse the the essence of seagal if you like him or you don't this is what he brings to the table and what I do like, especially in these early movies when he's really trying, you can't fit any other action hero into that. You can't, like, the closest might be Stallone, but, you know, pesky Stallone, he can act and he likes to. Um, with Seagal, <laughs> he really just is this unstoppable force. And unlike a Chuck Norris who is unstoppable but never says a word and he's very you know, removed. This is a guy that knows he's unstoppable. Of course he is. He's the producer. Um, (laughs) But there's a certain charisma to that. Like what on earth is this guy going to do next? He could just walk into any given room seemingly in the city of of New York uh, and knock out everyone in it. If he feels like that's exactly it. There's, there's that like kind of, you know, you're on the edge of your seat, not because it's a gripping story, but, it's because you don't know what this guy could do next. And literally anything is possible because right from the jump of the film, like everything sort of goes out the window. Um, and to his credit, you know, for better or for worse, in that opening scene when he blows the bust to go save uh, this prostitute who's getting beaten up on by her pimp, I knew that he was dangerous. Like I... You know, he he does a good job communicating that there is this sort of like I'm capable of anything quality to him Um, because, you know, two minutes into the film, I was like, oh, he's going to fuck that guy up. Like he's going to break his fingers or do something fucked up like they're not just going to arrest him. Yeah, it's and especially as you know, this is 91. So the highest grossing movie in the States that year was Terminator 2, Mm -hmm. which is R rated. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's a softer R than this is, um, and it's headed towards that blockbuster breed of action. This is not that. This cost I think fifteen million, which is like thirty today, which is still right. nothing. Uh, that's that's that magic number that means you're going to streaming, um, and certainly these movies are not being made for Netflix. Like it's such a strangely mean, relentless action movie, mm-hmm. um, more so than anything else he made. And especially his next movie, Under Siege, marks a retreat because Under Siege would work without him. Out for Justice, it is Seagal. That's the only reason really it hangs together. There's a man so distinctly potent and deluded <laughs> at, at the center of it. Um, even like it almost makes the monologues work as well because they're insane. The most interesting scene in this movie to me, because I've never seen it in any other movie. He goes to William Forsythe's parents' house. Yes. And tells them, in no uncertain terms, I'm going to kill your son. Where is he? 
Uh, and his dad begs him, what do I have to do uh, to make you stop? And he more or less says, nothing. I'm going to go kill your son now. <laughs> like, that's that's the conversation. And it's such a strange drama to that scene. And because Seagal is a human wrecking ball, it, it's it's fascinating to watch. It is. And he he also has these strange moments of, I don't want to say, like, guilt um but of like checking in with himself uh that seem kind of out of place he has this in incredible scene with uh Dominic Chianese who um I was so thrilled to see in this movie that you describe where he says I'm gonna kill your son bye uh and then proceeds to go you know interact with all of Richie's other family members to to try to find him and ends up like arresting his father, Dominic Kinese's character. <laughs> and but then like feels bad about it. For a brief moment, he's describing, you know, this propulsive quality of his of his search for justice and and kind of reckoning with the fact that it's 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 overtaken him i think he's speaking to his um his soon to be and then not soon to be ex-wife when he says like you know what i did tonight i went to the mandano's house and i basically told them that i was gonna kill their son and then you know what i did after that I arrested the father, this man that like raised me and, you know, used to give me money to go, go down to the shore to play with the kids. Like, and it's this, it's a totally bizarre moment where I just had to chalk it up to like, this was just another line Steven Seagal wanted to say, and he felt like it worked there. Um, but he does have a couple moments in the film where his character seems to give pause to this uh this wrecking ball quality that he has and feel a slight bit of remorse but then continues down the path regardless they're like moments of clarity yeah there aren't many but once in a while he kind of goes like yeah yeah i am insane like what i'm doing is not reasonable right it's not legal it's it's terrible frankly in any moral sense but i guess somebody's got to do it um like his (laughs) his well and honestly, that's why the best monologue, and it's set up very funny, at least it was funny to me, that his ex-wife, who's warming up to him again, invites him up for coffee. <laughs> and I'm immediately, every time I see this movie, I'm like, oh, is there a sex scene in this? No. He goes up and starts talking about his father, um, <laughs> about his knife-sharpening father, uh, who took his grinder through the streets of Brooklyn when he was a child and would sharpen the knives of everyone in town. I don't know if that ever happened, by the way. I've not checked. Um, sounded authentic enough. I'll give them that credit. Um, <laughs> everyone would bring out their cutlery, and he'd sharpen it for nickels. And then uh, people started getting disposable cutlery, and no one would bring it out to sharpen anymore. And so his dad kind of lost his mind, just going around the neighborhood, ringing for it. Uh, and Seagal says the point of the story is, quote, you feel useless, you die inside. And to me, I thought, I take that as the only moment where he truly explains himself in the movie. Mm, All he's good for is killing. Like, this is what he does. He is a dump truck in service of what he feels is right. Um, 
Because he blows off his son, too. That's a very funny yeah. side plot. <laughs> yes! The one weekend he's going to play baseball with his son. He's like, sorry, kid. I got to go out for justice. Not this weekend. <laughs> yeah, you know, those those monologues are fascinating because of the level of introspection. You know, that kind of like twinge of remorse, as you mentioned, Carly. But also, you know, like the way that they're framed, the the... the captive audience is always somebody who like is kind of lower on the totem than he is and someone who he could easily overpower or you you know like it's interesting the moments that uh we find where he has that clarity and where he feels comfortable enough to reveal himself one of them is with uh believe it's cheat right one of his childhood friends who works for the 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 local don um yeah, and, that's the God has a strange sense of humor speech. Yes. Yeah, that's is, my favorite if yeah. we're talking about favorite monologues. That one is good. <laughs> and, and you know, of course, the, again, the one with his estranged wife when he comes upstairs for espresso about his knife sharpening dad. and From the old country. From the old country. It's just, it, it is funny to think of him as, as you have both said, as this wrecking ball, as this propulsive, unstoppable force. And even those moments where he has introspection are not moments where he's being confronted with it by other people. It's moments where he simply like takes his own reprieve and sort of like forces people into his, into his monologues, you know, and, 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 and finds an audience uh, either willing to, or, or they're against their will and forced to just listen to him pontificate and, and uh, you know, reflect on himself and his upbringing. I don't like this subplot. I'm every time I go back and forth on whether or not it was added in post because the beginning and end, you're like, yeah, that's clearly a reshoot. But then it kind of factors in, in the middle is the dog. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. And this time what stood out to me though, uh, uh, for the listeners at home, you've not seen this. We've talked about how this movie is grim and gritty and fast and deranged. It at multiple moments stops cold so that he can accidentally be driving behind a car that throws out a puppy in a bag. Uh, and he, he rescues the puppy. And the first time you know, he picks it up, he looks at it. Um, and he prays to God that he will meet the man who threw that puppy out the car. Like, And to me, again, I don't think they meant it this way. But that's such a fascinating instinct that, oh, yeah, th- this guy threw this out. I hope I get to kill him soon. <laughs> that's what he's saying, really. Yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, there is a, a very funny thing with the puppy. Another reason I think it was added in reshoots is because he takes it in the car uh, and he buys the seltzer. And then next thing that happens is he sees Richie, William Forsythe, with his guys and a car chase starts. And he goes down that endless row of humps, just like shaking the car with the puppy on the <laughs> seat. With the puppy. But you never see it. The movie doesn't show you the puppy. And then, like, a half an hour later, he literally says, oh, shoot, yeah, I have a puppy in my car. <laughs> he and says, he goes I forgot out to about you. It. Yeah. I found it interesting, too, Jeremy, that his character, you know, when uh, when I was saying earlier that I, I constantly felt the fourth wall being broken, that, you know, Steven Seagal was really telling me things he wanted me to hear versus Gino Felino doing so. Um I felt that way too about the fact that he gets to play, he gets to be a cop, right? So he gets to be sort of on the side of moral good, at least in in the diegesis of Correct. the film, right? He um, is justice. 
he is justice, but he also gets to be a gangster. Like he also gets to be mobbed up because all of his, all of his friends, all of his family members are all like, uh, you know, either mobbed up or like mob adjacent. Um, he knows, he knows their world. He knows what they do, what they don't do. He knows where they hang out. It's like, he gets to do all the things. It's, it's this dream role for him, right. Of like getting to be the good guy, the purveyor of justice, and also getting to play, you know, a Brando type if he's, if he's stretching himself. So this is a, a, an early sign of his tendency as a person and as a, a, an actor to want to be recognized as cool by groups that um, there's no reason they should ever have to deal with, really. Um, in this case, as you said, he just walks into mob hideouts and and they're like, oh, Gino. And he just sits down and talks to them as if he's not a cop. Yes. Um and actually, really, if you look at it, he spends way more time in this movie talking to and hanging out with mob types than any cops. He yeah. absolutely uh, does. <laughs> and it's it gets worse across his career, especially as to what groups he starts deciding they would think I'm cool. Uh, on Deadly Ground, I think his character is Native American. If... Uh, the character is not. He's certainly uh, granted that uh, mm. being Native American by a tribe that considers him the great bear and ah. gives him a spirit journey and so on and so forth and <laughs> oh says, you're the hero we've been waiting for. Oh, um, no. You can see it uh, starting with the Glimmer Man. He starts tipping in another direction. Uh, and you can see it best in his uh, Stephen Skull Lawman reality show where he's um, a a uh, a deputy, a glorified deputy, um, <laughs> in a Louisiana jurisdiction, where he starts talking to the predominantly uh, black citizens. They hassle, and he starts using phrases like "white people" as if he's not one, and that he has more kinship with them. Okay. Um, and certainly his accent has changed by that point in his career. No more yeah. Papa John's Italian. Um, and it does. He does that. He just he really wants everyone to think that he's cool. And clearly he does think that, oh, yeah, I'm cool with everybody. There's no everyone would just welcome me me in with open arms. Benny, the book, how are you, buddy? Huh? Benny, you won't be over here using my belt for like illegal means, would you? Bookmakers in illegal activity, you know. You also would not know that uh, Richie owns this place and that he sells narcotics here because he's a fucking puke and he likes to pervert kids and stuff, huh? Drugs. Nobody uses drugs around here. Yeah. You don't know nothing, do you? Me and you for that, huh? Anybody see Richie? Fuck you. Anybody know why Richie did Bobby Lupo? You know what, Cool Breeze? What's that? One of these days, your wise mouth is going to get the rest of your body in a whole lot of trouble. Where are you from, Finok? Attica. Yeah? Yeah. You couldn't be from Brooklyn, because we don't talk like that around here, you know what I'm saying? Huh? Tattoo, believe me, this guy's nothing without that bitch and go. You can't come back here. Get the fuck out of here. Hey, Vinny! What the fuck? What do we got here, huh? What is this shit, huh? Huh? 
Whose hot dog is this, huh? Is it yours? If you'd have that badge and that gun, these guys would take Wait your head off. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. I noticed a lot of boxing memorabilia. We got some gloves over here. Pictures everywhere. Who's the boxer? Me. You're the boxer? Yeah. You're a tough guy. Yeah, tough enough. I feel like the pairing as you said, Aaron, between uh, William Forsyth and Steven Seagal in the characters of Richie and Gino is like one of the only ways that this movie works Um, because Steven Seagal is deluded and crazy and this like nonstop force of violence and, you know, pontificating and equally on the other side of that, um, on the other side of that story is this character of Richie played incredibly by William Forsythe, who is batshit insane and has lost all, you know, sense of like any sort of a moral compass. Um, and it it's the only, it's like the only countervailing force that feels like it's a match for Seagal's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's exactly why Seagal wanted his part cut down because Forsyth being a professional knew exactly what he was getting into. Um, right. And so he managed to uh, find the equal opposite frequency. Here's a guy who's insane in a different direction. And what's what's funny is the, the main difference between them uh, going back to what the Seagal definition of justice is the main difference between them and the only thing in the movie that Seagal truly hates are drugs. Yes. Yep. (laughs) Everything else is kind of negotiable. Like he doesn't really care about anything else, but those, you know, that, that crackhead he's got, like it's so, so hard. Anytime someone mentions that, Oh yeah, well, Richie was high or he was doing whatever. And it's like, Ooh, ooh! Why are you that angry about this? Given you know the murders, I I was kind of like agape around the moralizing around crack specifically. Yeah, um, it's very important that it's crack. It's realize, very so. important that it's crack, right? Yes. Like it is. It is Richie. Um, you know, R- Richie is when they when his friends and family speak about him. They pull no punches around the fact that he's lost his mind because of crack, that he's doing all of these, um, you know, insane acts of violence, that he's on this frequency precisely because of the drugs and no other reason. And it's not cocaine and it's not heroin and it's not alcohol. It's crack. And just to pull out for a second because we do that on this show. It's no secret that, um, you know, the, the penal codes related to crack versus cocaine, uh, purposefully adversely affected black populations in a way that, um, our country still hasn't recovered from. There's this specter of this drug ridden, a street hard person who is just out to do nothing but bludgeon and murder anyone that stands in their way. And it's a complete fabrication. 
And to see it so clearly represented in this uh, this figure fallen from grace um, in Richie is just a fascinating, it's a fascinating artifact of the time. It's doubly interesting because his first movie was about how the CIA is more or less inherently evil. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'll let people connect those dots as they will. The other thing, so, th- I mean, this is a grandstanding movie. Despite the uh, the pulp, and boy, how much pulp there is, um, this is also the movie, uh, unless I'm mistaken, in which case it wouldn't be much past this, where Seagal was accused of sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. of mm. keeping two Russian women around uh, for reasons not uh, elucidated. Um, and I believe it was tossed for a... It, by the time it kind of came out, it was uh, statute of limitation, something like that. Uh, but again, this is movie number four in three years of his complete career mm-hmm. as a movie star. And that's how far gone this man was. Right. I'm not saying fame made him a bad guy. I'm saying fame is gasoline, uh, you know, whatever match you put to it. Um, and so that's how quickly he had lost his mind hmm. in this movie, you know, mm-hmm. where as I leaned into it, I, I have no stigma for any of these folks, but as I leaned into it, like crackhead is said as if it's a curse. In yes. This movie. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, and the drug is treated like it's some sort of hallucinogen. Yes. You know, it's like, it, yeah, well, if Richie hadn't done that, he'd be fine. <laughs> like, what? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what's, what, what do you think this does? It's so blatantly deranged in and of itself. It's such a perspective that uh, that's grounded in, like, this societal mythology around, uh, around drugs and around specifically this drug that is, um, you know... Uh, was forced upon black populations in, in this country for all kinds of reasons, which we don't need to get into right now. And that like, it's seen as lower than murder. It's seen lower than like rape or any sort of crookedness on the police, the police's part. Like it's this, it's this complete and utter, um, disillusion of all that like society holds dear and you know the there's even a a a distinction in the movie made the film goes out of its way to like make sure that we know that richie's crack use and his volatility is distinct and far worse than the relative civility of organized crime yes so when he's introduced the first three things uh, Richie's care. Well, Richie does. One, he guns down a cop in broad daylight. Two, he smokes crack in his car. <laughs> and three, he immediately gets out of the car, walks to another car, pulls the driver out, and just shoots her in the head. Um, if that's not a statement, I don't know what is. Right. Yeah, and it's jarring. It's it- wild, man. <laughs> The movie has a, a interesting sort of moral barometer, I feel like, you know, and, and as you already mentioned, Jeremy, Seagal spends more time with mobsters than he does with any police officers in this movie. Uh, this is a, an interesting kind of like weird errant thread in the movie. 
Uh, it's completely inconsequential. It adds a little bit of texture and color. We see kind of like the the relationships and we get a sense of that kind of upbringing within Brooklyn. But they don't really factor into the plot beyond that, besides just to be another force trying to convince Seagal to stop his his uh, his pursuit of justice and let them handle things their own way. Uh, but but, you know, they never send in any of their own guys. Seagal is never forced to like dispense of any mobsters who are like getting in his way. They're just sort of like texture and, and they're in the periphery. Yeah, I mean, they're barely antagonists because technically that's right. kind of what they are. Like, I kind of think that Seagal is using most of that as wallpaper. That's mm-hmm. more of the yep. the Brooklyn cred, at least in his mind. Um, and they're all great mob actors. It's It's classic yeah. stuff. It's just so funny that he goes to them more or less just to tell them, I'm going to kill him. Good luck. And just walks out. Right. And they never really deal with him again for the movie. And he just starts ruining some of their operations because he feels like it. <laughs> the movie, interestingly, kind of has. Okay, I'm I'm gonna walk this delicately here. The movie sort of says a cab, but I don't think the movie intends to say a cab. You no. know, like like Seagal is certainly not trying to position police officers as degenerate or you know evil or or corrupt in any way. Despite the fact that in the movie, it all of these cops are doing things extra judicially. They don't seem concerned with letting him off the leash to do things his own way and an unmarked with a shotgun. It's very clear that he's not the only cop who's kind of mobbed up and has these like longstanding ties with organized crime. Uh, and, and even, you know, like the, the dirty cop in this uh, Bobby Lupo his his former partner. Uh, they only think can consider that he's gone astray because he's also involved in the drugs, right? Like he's he's trying to make money on the side uh, by involving himself in kind of Richie's lifestyle, and because he's been unfaithful, right? And because, that's the other thing that makes him crooked because he cheats on his <laughs> wife, right? That's you know, that's the cardinal sin. That's what does that's it. Cardinal um, sin, man. Seagal has an interesting relationship with the police. Obviously, ultimately favorable because he pretended he was one for a time Mm -hmm. uh in the eyes of the law technically he was one his first of his first four movies three of them he plays a cop this movie i feel like is the closest to uh as you said a cap i'll just say complicating it Mm -hmm. Uh, right everyone's kind of compromised in the story uh except for steven seagal right (laughs) uh and his only compromise is that he's homicidal really uh which is why the puppy subplot i think is a really hard course correction to prove he's actually a -hmm. nice guy Mm -hmm. and that's why i don't like it because he's not and he shouldn't be the some of the best acting from him in this movie uh make the jokes that you will or when he's just an abject asshole when he's in the billiard hall and he is wrecking everybody. In. Like, he, okay, the bartender's uh, telling him to leave. Get get out from behind the bar. That is a completely reasonable request. <laughs> He's a cop. He has no warrant, no nothing. Seagal not only keeps walking behind the bar, challenges the guy's boxing credentials, and then sucker punches his nose in. <laughs> yes. Um, and Seagal is as natural as he ever is. He's just this bully. And he knows nobody can stop him. And no one does. That's who he should stay. Like, that's the guy we're watching. That Yeah, he probably should be alone 
as as this uh, a sledgehammer. No one should be around this guy. But the movie can't quite let that go. Yeah, the ending is totally bizarre. It has this weird, like, Laverne and Shirley, like, do-do-do-do-do-do, like, ending where, like, I felt like there should be a freeze frame or something. Like, Yeah, I call it, like, a touchstone comedy. And it is. Where you're like, it's exactly that. And then there's a poppy song over the end credits. Um, although, instead, there's a song that Steven Seagal co-wrote over the end credits. <laughs> okay, the... The music in this film is is interesting. Like I was expecting I don't know what I was expecting actually. I didn't I didn't know what to expect. It's this weird amalgam uh of hip hop that was uh you know being written at the time also very on the nose them uh scoring one of the first early scenes with Beastie Boys No Sleep Till Brooklyn um but has some other hip hop uh, tracks in there and then also in the scoring of the film like I'm thinking particularly the talk outside of Kono's the restaurant um, the neighborhood joint that he goes and and speaks to Don Vittorio at um, and then walks outside you know sort of around the the valet chalet with Cheech telling some story I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop to have him like punch him in the fucking face or but he just tells the story and they shake hands and he fucking goes on his way anyways the scoring of that of that particular scene is this kind of like grand godfather-esque strings swelling very like weepy sort of like string instruments and it's what have you. so nuts it's and nuts. he's telling a story about the time when he was nine and a mafioso asked him to intimidate a guy in a trunk yes <laughs> that's yeah. that's the grand touching moment of the movie i mean it is my favorite monologue and i think i like it because it's so fucking wacky like mm-hmm. the story makes no sense but steven seagal is giving it his all it has this like godfather like score in the background cheech is just hanging on his every word it's it's such a it's such a silly moment in the film. There's like that wonderful, like the conclusion, like the, like uh, the punctuating moment of the story is him being like, I was nine years old and I had to say, Hey, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like that. Okay. That's the story. <laughs> he, that's how he talked when he was nine. Yes. Apparently. Uh, I, I don't want to leave uh, talking about the bar scene and, and some of the parts when he's being, uh, you know, just a complete asshole without talking for, all of 10 seconds about the film's fixation with uh, various types of like sausages. Um, there's the, the part in the, in the deli where, or in the butchery, I guess, where he beats the guy with the, with the salami. Um, there's the, the incredible, just immaculate chef's kiss line when he's flipping everyone's uh, drinks over at the bar, when he goes behind it, when he asks, uh, whose hot dog is this? I got a hot dog here and, you know, kind of tosses a, a wiener. There's another like uh, off reference to somebody who wants a chili dog later on while they're at right. Coney Island or something. They just they're they're into the hot dogs. They're into the sausages in this movie. It's uh, uh, I think on Deadly Ground, uh, similar fixation, but I think no fewer than three times they specifically ADR. Uh, some variation of my balls after someone gets kicked as if you don't know (laughs) 
Uh, and it happens once in this movie, so I was like, that's maybe that's just a thing that he's always like, well, the audience has to know it really hurt. Oh my god, you're right, because it is at the end of the film when he does, in fact, meet up with the guy who threw the puppy out the window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A reverse uh, uh, ball kick, no less. From behind, From behind. man. Yep. Yeah, those are the worst ones, really. You never see them coming. It's funny, you know. That character, when we're first introduced to this, you know, shadowy figure who dumps a, a puppy out of the, the window in a garbage bag, he has a, a bumper sticker <laughs> that seems to to be the sort of guiding ethos of the entire film, which is uh, kill them all, let God sort them out. And it's just funny to think, you know, of Seagal and, and specifically Gino in the movie, seeing this guy and realizing that, like, besides the fact that this guy's willing to just dump a puppy the two of them probably share quite a bit in common in terms That's of their not mindsets far from his philosophy yes uh, exactly. in this movie because i mean he's destroying relationships he's destroying businesses he's just right. kind of doing whatever he feels like to get one guy who's gonna die soon one way or another um, right and he immediately sees that and is disgusted at such at such a line uh what what's interesting about him being an asshole in this movie is that if you do watch any Leno appearances, any late night interviews with him at this time, even with hosts that he allegedly has some chummy rapport with, uh, he has all of the charm of a guy who's going to meet that host in the parking lot later. Like there's always this sort of quiet threat in him. He is famous slash infamous for being, uh, to some, the worst Saturday Night Live host yes. ever. Right. Um, to the point that Lorne himself, Lorne Michaels, makes that joke in a later mm-hmm. episode. Yep. If you've ever seen parts of that show, it is astounding how unfunny he is and how seriously he takes himself. So th- this is a guy who wouldn't know a joke uh if it you know hit him doing 80 and this is this is the only one of his early movies to really never ask him to tell a joke there are things he enjoys like those monologues that to him he thinks are hilarious the fact that that doesn't play is just funnier to us like oh yeah this guy's nuts like he thinks that's hilarious why (laughs) i don't know it begs the question that i wanted to ask you aaron and i were grappling with this earlier why do you think he was famous like we have this this flash in a pan of him doing you know these these movies in a short amount of time and you sort of alluded to the fact that there was this intent uh to make him a martial arts star i'm still just like kind of bewildered by the fact that he had any purchase in Hollywood whatsoever. And I want to know your thoughts on that, Jeremy. Well, I do think a lot of it rests on, frankly, the quality of Above the Law, because Above the Law is a good movie. One of the interesting things about Above the Law is that he's yet to figure out a voice. And I mean that in the most literal sense possible. In Above (laughs) the Law, he talks as he sounds. Hmm. Obviously, he doesn't do that in this movie. Right. But even in something like um, Hard to Kill, he's already started to do it. Coming in at eighty in 1988, 
that's the year Dirty Harry ends. That's the year Die Hard begins. Um, you're a year after Predator, which is all about Arnold being afraid for the first time uh, mm-hmm. in a movie. The age of the Superman, the sun's starting to go down. It doesn't set until Last Action Hero, um, ironically enough. Here's a guy who's kind of of that school. He's clearly that indestructible type. Here's a new action hero, Chuck Norris, whatever. Um, in the background, Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson are doing this for Canon Films, and they're mm-hmm. you know, plugging along. Here's a guy now with the full backing of Warner Brothers. As presented in Above the Law, he is an interesting difference. He is a Dirty Harry type. His partner is Pam Greer in that movie. Um, mm. He's a Dirty Harry type with uh, with some Chuck Norris moves. You know, in all the ways Clint Eastwood's methodical, he's, he's fast, um, and he is dangerous. He has a certain uh, uh, X factor to him that, in, to a point, Ovitz was right, that this guy could be a star. With Hard to Kill, it immediately becomes kind of self-parody. So I do think there's mm. almost a ceiling set for himself that, uh, how serious can this guy be? And Ovitz, who uh, we'll say is not the most necessarily reliable narrator, has said that he felt this is a guy that immediately thought success in one thing meant he was successful in everything. And that's why he went from zero to why am I not nominated for an Oscar in mm. like five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those early movies, there's a charisma you're not getting anywhere else. The movies were made for relatively cheap and they all made money. They did very well for Warner Brothers. And so he was manufactured in a sense and people liked it. And he took that as tacit endorsement of anything he wanted to do. Mm. Um, and he quickly proved that uh, to be the case with On Deadly Ground, which is the first moment where you go, oops, now this guy doesn't know what he's doing. There is a potentially apocryphal, but but uh, seems you know widely corroborated and, and fundamental at this point. There's a story uh, about him on the set of this movie with uh, stunt coordinator Gene LaBelle. Oh, do no. You, do you want to tell this story, Jeremy? Um, sure. So the story goes, Gene LaBelle is um is a legend martial arts circles and Seagal knew this he's on set and he made a challenge to the crew that no one could knock him out and that he had a move that would immediately release any hold uh there are a couple versions of this story but the whether or not the whole the the move was there is is the trick but regardless gene labelle who's by uh, most count, a very nice man. He's just like, all right, fine, I'll I'll try it. Puts him in a hold, uh, and I guess Seagal's move was just to kick him as hard as he could in the balls, like just a just a pop, uh, as if this was some martial arts prowess. And and Gene Labelle, he took it, but he just held on because he's a pro. And Seagal uh, almost immediately passes out. And soils himself on the way down. <laughs> um, in the years since, Seagal has accused Gene LaBelle of being a pathological liar. Um, hmm. LaBelle, when questioned about it, has neither confirmed nor denied, although at one point he said, it is possible. 
if someone has recently eaten a very large meal and you choke <laughs> them out, that could happen. And that's all he said on the matter. I would tend to believe it, at least in some form. Uh, maybe not the whole enchilada, but uh, yeah, certainly that's something Stephen Skull would do. Absolutely. Yeah. That's like incredibly believable. It, it absolutely <laughs> is. Um, and, you know, uh, if, if we're staying on this subject of, you know, just the, the profound asshole that Steven Seagal is and just kind of him as a character and, and the way he's evolved, you know, another accusation that comes out quite often uh, is his penchant for taking shots at stunt performers. Uh, I think this is mm-hmm. something that maybe Gene LaBelle has mentioned. Um, one of the performers in uh, this film, uh, kind of in, in sort of nameless uh, gang member role, is uh, the great Kane Hodder, who's really famous for playing Jason Voorhees in, in several movies. Um, also corroborates this, that that Seagal likes to take shots and, and hit people who can't necessarily hit him back. Um, I, I think that speaks to a, a little bit of this kind of, I, I don't know, this this person who Steven Seagal is at his core, right? The kind of guy who who likes to victimize, who likes to bully. Um, and, and I think it kind of makes more sense when you think of that, uh, the way that his career has evolved um, and certainly his... His, I don't know if I'd call them aspirations, but of course his his political objectives and and his stature, you know, within uh, Putin's circle and uh, also Donald Trump's circle in in modern day. Mm-hmm. Another thing he does uh, to this day, when asked about any contempt, most contemporaries, at first it was actors. Van Damme's the most famous. Interviewers would say, "What do you think about him?" Because again, they're kind of contemporaries. For a while, he would refuse to say anything and just kind of let uh, let the silence speak for itself. Recently, he's <laughs> he said, and I quote, "Can I laugh in your face?" Uh, he he alleged that Van Damme is not a martial artist; that his his plaudits are fake; um, that he can't do anything for real. In recent years, he's said similar things about uh, MMA and UFC. That uh, oh yeah, he he's trained some of these guys, and he could get in the ring with any of them. And, mm. And uh, and any experienced fighter tells you, like, no, if you've not been in there, you have no idea. Um, and again, look at the shape that Seagal is in now. Arguably, Aikido should still work. Like, you can watch some very silly demonstrations of him in recent years in uh, Russia where a team of guys in their 20s runs at him one at a time, and he just kind of grabs them by the wrist, and then the guy's hurl themselves over and act like they've just been murdered. Uh, and it's like, look at that prowess. Look how good this guy is at martial arts. The thing is, Aikido could do that. You know, it's supposed to be something, as I said, minimal movement to use momentum against them. Uh, but it's it's fake. You right. know, he's, he's done it to himself. He's made every possible part of his legacy and what he's allegedly good at uh, up for question. It's a punchline, as I said. Like... He's he's a clown and he's also a terrible guy. <laughs> um, and that's where it starts hitting stunt guys, thinking you're tougher than people who are uh, by job description, tougher than you are. And they can't hit you back. But yeah. it also makes sense. You know, now that we're talking about this, I feel like I'm also kind of answering my own question. Like, it makes sense that someone like that would be famous in America 
mm-hmm. or become president, right? Like <laughs> it it's it, it's um he sort of embodies like all of the most terrible aspects of like sort of diluted American exceptionalism and like that we are a a fucking bully like it, it it makes a ton of sense that he would that he would uh be famous and have some sort of sway over audiences and that's that's why he fascinates me ultimately um and it's why i'm always careful to recommend anything by him to anybody because i don't i don't need anyone assuming like yeah i i love the guy i don't uh i think he has a very interesting presence i think he could have been much more than he was if he did not have the ego, but you know, you can't remove that without killing the man as it were. So um, he is for all his attempts to be so many ethnicities uh, and so many cultures, a uniquely American success story. If you can call it that, given that he fled the country over various criminal investigations. (laughs) Um, And now he just a couple times a year pumps out, direct to video shadows of his former glories uh one of the last ones of which he spent the entire movie sitting down that's i i mean no ableism by that he's he's an able-bodied guy but that's how little he cared he never his stunt guy stood up wow he never got out of a chair yeah yeah that feels pretty american right that sounds like a good arc it's like you know you sort of generate a certain amount of of wealth and capital uh and then you kind of just like siphon off the 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 like memory of that of that life uh for the rest of your your days Uh, in the last like five or six years he's once in a while claimed that above the law two and under siege three are in development Mm. and the thing is like he's (laughs) he's he's almost not allowed back in the United States. What does he, what does anyone think he's going to do exactly? (laughs) What studio, it's not as if Warner brothers lets him on the lot anymore. Right. (laughs) But Hey, he gets to skate on it. He does. He gets, he's, he's done his duty, I guess, in, in the eyes of probably just himself. Um, and like you said, Carly acquired this capital. Um, he is, you know, a minor criminal, there were no less than I think three sexual assault allegations from this movie alone that we spoke about today and more that followed him, his trafficking situation. The irony of the fact that, you know, he is uh, a dog lover and a a doer of justice in this movie and uh, then was later sued for damages because uh, in a raid for that reality television show, uh, he and the police officers ended up killing a dog while they like broke with into a this tank, person I think. with it with a tank yeah just, just shot a dog um it, it, he's a yeah he's a fascinating like set of contradictions and just kind of like awful awful qualities that as you mentioned jeremy just seem uh uniquely definitively kind of uh of our culture could not have been produced anywhere else and and fame like that could not have been found anywhere else but in our our own system um, one of his last theatrical releases, uh, Exit Wounds, mm-hmm. is, um, I would say it's a good movie, at least a good Seagal movie. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is you can find press releases uh, or just announcements leading up to it that the only way it could get made was Joel Silver, who's, um, you know, an 80s super producer, so much action. Yeah. Um, had to be the one to spearhead it. And Seagal had to be put on a regimen to lose weight. 
and get back in shape. And it is very much a throwback to Above the Law, but with a lot more wire work in it. And he's co-starring um, with uh, DMX for the first time. And yeah. yeah. It's, there's, there's a hip-hop culture to it. And it was a success. And then he immediately got into worse shape than he ever could for his next theatrical release. And it was just bad. Like it's, I, and I think the timeline lines up where it was very early two thousands. So right when, you know, there was a last gasp, but maybe that eighties action could work where the bad guys are so clear or whatever, at least in American culture, you have uh, this attack that changes it. And he just kind of gives up and disappears. That's it. There's no, um, he was, I, I, According to him, he was invited to participate in one of the Expendables, but he mm-hmm. said no on the grounds that there are certain people that he he would not work with. Um, whether or not Stallone extended that olive branch, I don't know, but hmm. that makes complete sense to me. That yeah, this is a guy that uh, as soon as he could kind of got out of dodge. Yeah, you know, it's it's a guy who in in Seagal seems unwilling to 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 do the collaborative work of maintaining anything whether that's a relationship whether that's a physical shape whether that's you know uh the, the anything really you know yeah just an insane amount of hubris i looked it up exit wounds was as i had guessed uh, a decade later from out for justice almost mm-hmm. exactly it was so 2001 gone, yeah so he'd gone okay. from the height of his power literally this is his oscar swing just look at that arthur miller quote um (laughs) to a producer who's also kind of down on his luck needs to take this chance and also you got to get back into that shape again and also you're kind of playing the hits again and we got to put you with dmx and tom arnold and anthony anderson to have a chance of this thing working um that's that's a precipitous fall yes Um, (laughs) <laughs> to get that high and then that low, uh, even though that's still obviously much better than the, his subsequent movies would get release wise, um, to just start established. That's, that's incredible, incredible, a theatrical, uh, career of, uh, what, 13 or 14 years and nothing more. Yeah. Yeah. That star that, as we already said, burned incredibly bright, uh, and burned very briefly, uh, Jeremy, as we're concluding here, I, I want to know your definitive ranking of your top five Seagulls. What what order would you put Oof. them in personally? Um, all right. So if, th- if this is personal entertainment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, these will be in a loose order because some of them I, I feel strongly about, some I don't. Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, is among his most entertaining Okay. Uh, All right. He's he's kind of autopiloting it, but the movie around him is so absurd because it's the villains uh, or the main villain is Eric Bogosian. Oh, awesome! uh, Who is just the weirdest energy to to put against the goal? Above the law is up there. Uh, Of his, I mean, Hard to Kill is the goofiest movie he made of his prime. Uh, So I would probably put it in there. Uh, I think that's what three pistol whipped is perhaps the best of his DTV era. Still okay. whipped pistol whipped. Yeah. The villain is Lance Henriksen, but he's in it for like two scenes. What? Wow. Yeah. Well, I, and here's the thing pistol whipped without getting in too far into it. Most of his DTV stuff is about him as, you know, surprise, surprise, former wet work guy 
who's <laughs> sent in to do something. And they're, they're so convoluted. Uh, and I've looked into why, and it's more or less his production company says, we want to do this, this, and this. And the writer just has to like uh, uh, tie yarn on all of the different <laughs> plot points. Um, but Pistol Whipped, he plays just a burnout. Like he's a deadbeat dad. He's a drunk. Uh, and it's one of the few movies where he plays just not even despicable, a pathetic guy. Um, oh, I kind and- of love that. Yeah, I would recommend it. And given you know he's in he's bigger at that point, it's a he hits some notes that you might not expect, uh, and he does actually really put himself into the fights a little bit. There's a lot of more a lot more kicks than than used to be, but um, Pistol Whipped is up there. Okay. And then um, on Deadly Ground is, I would say, fascinating enough to qualify. I gotta. What be in makes the mood. you say that? Uh, if you've never seen On Deadly Ground, which, uh, as to reiterate, that's his uh, uh, ter- Terms of Endearment meets Three Days of the Condor. Right. Um, it's about him fighting Michael Caine, who is an evil oil magnate. And it ends with a, a five-minute, maybe longer, monologue of him telling the audience, to be frank, how to save the environment. And legend has it that the original cut was like 40 minutes, as in the speech was like 40 minutes. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. Uh, and it may or may not have played once at a test screening before Warner <laughs> Brothers convinced them to take it out. And that's the only movie ever directed, which does count for something. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that's for sheer fascination. I'll put that on there. That's a good list. And y- you make really good arguments for the movie's um if if nothing else being like interesting and entertaining watches just as an artifact of their time and as an artifact of Steven Seagal and his career and I absolutely feel that way about Out for Justice like I enjoyed watching it um it's definitely like an entertaining movie the stunt work is incredible even if you know Steven Seagal himself is not really getting his hands dirty um, and the performances around the mo- around him and in the movie are are really stellar too. And as you said, like just morbid fascination watching him on screen. Like anytime he's opening his mouth, I'm just like, what is about to happen? And I'm here for it, whatever it is. But also, I hate you. <laughs> but really, like to a point, that isn't that star power. Yeah, someone you can watch on screen and. Despite whatever they're doing, some some exterior quality coming through where you're like, I can't stop watching this. Yes. Um, and that's what fascinates me about him. And I do have to shout out uh, Outlaw Vern, a great a great writer on the Internet who's written books about him uh, mm-hmm. called Sigology, the study of his, his yeah, films. Please, if you're that curious, buy his books. They're great. I believe he, in light of all of the terrible things that have come out over the years, he kind of said he's going to stop updating it. But mm. uh, which I respect. And that's that's the contradiction I feel whenever I do uh, things like this podcast where I talk at length about how fascinating this movie is uh, for a very bad human being. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are lessons to be learned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess we can all go on record as saying that we uh, do not condone or support, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, any of the actions of Steven Seagal, the man. Um, but uh, yes, think that 
I'll, I'll just echo both of you in that out for justice as a first watch for me was uh, infinitely compelling. Uh, like I said, I, I reached some of those like points where all I felt was just this like kind of ecstasy of de- this delirious sort of sense of, I don't know what's happening. I've kind of lost control of the plot and where this is going, uh, but I'm here for it. And every time Seagal opens his mouth, every time we wind up in a set piece populated by a lot of, you know, like thugs with facial hair and tattoos, like I know, I know I'm in for a treat. I know something interesting is going to happen mm-hmm. in this movie. It's um, a dangerous movie. Uh, it, and we don't get many is. of those anymore. At least not not action movies. That's very true. 100% agree. I, you know, I, again, I, I, I'm going to say this maybe now for like the fifth time on the show, but like we've, we've basically banned the phrase, you can't make a movie like this anymore from the show because we would just be saying it about everything we watch. But, you know, it, it does feel that way so frequently where you think about, you know, the kind of like immaterial, uh, feckless kind of gray sludge that gets produced, you know, to, to appeal to the four quadrants. That's mostly made for, you know, like a younger audience and, and a, a much more delicate kind of viewing audience. Then you see something like this where William Forsyth puts a bullet in a random innocent woman's head and you just get a sense immediately that you are in a different era, that you are, are watching a different kind of movie making than we've become accustomed to. Um, and that in its own right is thrilling. An interesting counterpoint is that beyond the movies there really aren't action stars like this anymore yeah Um, yes you look at two kind of close uh equivalents michael j white and uh scott adkins Mm -hmm. and you'll see them pop up occasionally in bit-ish parts in big movies but they live on on vod yeah and that's you know those movies frankly might cost as much as this did uh, but this went wide. <laughs> this was in theaters uh, for right. months, um, and that just doesn't happen anymore. One hundred percent agree. I, and you know, thinking about like the most, uh, the the modern uh, sort of like most successful or, or widely known of those two performers that you you mentioned. Like, I think first and foremost of uh, of Black Dynamite, right? Which is not exactly a, a showcase for uh, Jai White's. Uh, martial artistry or or his like action appeal you know and and uh you know the uh the universal soldier movies you know and scott adkins's involvement Mm -hmm. in those later on you know have have kind of day uh, of reckoning yeah yeah day of reckoning gains you know has a sort of a foothold i know in like action twitter and and you know circles who are are more involved in that kind of thing but i don't think you know your your average moviegoer wouldn't necessarily know about it or, or have seen it um yeah you just you don't see you don't see the prowess. You don't see the kinds of movies getting released as widely. You don't see the star power behind them. You don't see the the gamble being made w- within like the Hollywood machine anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think something's been kind of lost in that. It, I mean, it's still fun to dig those up and to discover those as they happen. Um, but Seagal is absolutely just a, a player and a, a force that, feels very indicative of a very specific time and place and and that time being you know largely the the portion of history that we cover on the show he's a ghost and a clown to this point (laughs) yes and the the kind of uh uh agony and ecstasy of it is it's a shame that we don't get these seemingly out of nowhere in his in his case literally out of nowhere 
arrivals of weird energies on screen, mm-hmm. <laughs> on big screens, and on many screens anymore. However, that immediate inflation is how you get monsters like Steven Seagal. Yeah. Um, it's strange. And that's that's the fundamental uh, splinter down the middle of any discussion of him. Well said. Um, it's a fascinating piece of work. Seagal is a, a fascinating entity, and I could not think of a better person to to bring us along uh, on this journey and to to guide us through the world and history of the man and the myth uh, than Mr. Jeremy Herbert. Jeremy, thank you again so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, agreeing to this movie as a topic. I don't know if you knew what you were agreeing to. <laughs> We are willing. I'm to, so glad we did. We are always willing to to uh, take a gamble, take a risk on things. You know, we have have been accused before of like liking everything, and I don't think that that's really the case. I think we just uh, find that even the worst movies that we come across uh, manage to be interesting artifacts and have something to talk about. And this is by no means the worst movie we've seen on this show. <laughs> Definitely uh, not. My rule is uh, there's something to be learned and appreciated in almost any movie uh and the only true blowout movies are the ones where there's nothing to take away you know you can't they're not interesting um otherwise there's always something you can learn completely agree that's the whole sort of spirit of all of the conversations we have on this show particularly coming from an era like the 90s which just has so much media for us to talk about and examine um, and such a strange time politically and formative time politically for this country. I think like um, there's always something to be gained from uh, watching even the most reprehensible of films. There is Which a just is say not. no joke in this. Uh, we didn't bring there it up. Is. Yeah. Yes. It, it, uh, it's an, a f- compelling and, and fascinating artifact of the era. Um, and I, once again, just thank you, Jeremy, for bringing it to us. Um, where can uh, where can people find you, Jeremy, and your work? Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter at D-Day Films. Um, there are links to at least where I write right now for Slash Film. Um, by the time this airs, I might be writing for another place as well. Uh, and that's where I post updates for my movie projects, one of which should be happening uh, later this year, the Worst Laid Plans Horror Anthology. So keep keep an ear open for that. Uh, otherwise, yeah, that's about it. I try to stay off the grid b- besides that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, thank you again. Um, and as always, you can follow along with us uh, at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe for bi-weekly bonus episodes and other special content at our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Uh, we'll give a shout out, as always, to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And uh, we will catch you all the next time.
way to hold. We got 